0: This is episode two in a multi-part series. We are releasing new episodes of this case each week. Then we will return to our usual schedule of the 1st and the 15th in February. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone on a saturday night in october of 2000 justin Mello went to work at his part-time job at mancino's pizza and grinders a popular pizza place in his hometown of new baltimore michigan while his co-worker was out on a delivery 16 year old justin who was alone in the store was forced into the restaurant cooler where he was shot execution style the bullet ricocheting into bags of shredded cheese. This senseless crime shook the city, and a sixth department task force worked to investigate the crime and bring his killer or killers to justice. Come with me as we return to the Lakeside City, as suspects emerge and as a community tries to put the pieces back together. On October 26th, as Justin was laid to rest at St. Mary's Cemetery, the task force was zeroing in on their suspects. That night, Matthew Daniels, age 16, Jonathan Khaled, age 18, and Frank Quicken, age 19, were taken into the station by police, read their rights, and interrogated. It was a former Mancino's employee who brought these three young men to the attention of law enforcement. And after an investigation into the trio, Investigators believed that they were on the right track, and they obtained arrest warrants. According to the former employee, Jonathan was overheard talking about Mancino's being an easy target for robbery. And listeners, I'm not sure if Jonathan was a former employee or just a customer who made unsettling observations about the business. Police also made a connection to Frank after interviewing people who had been returning their rentals to the nearby Blockbuster the night of the murder. They connected a vehicle seen by one of the witnesses to the vehicle Frank owned. This tip, and someone saying that they saw Frank's car near the pizza parlor, were enough for the police, and they brought the three young men in for questioning. The interrogations began around 8 p.m. As Matthew was a minor, he had his mom sit in on the interview. As the night wore on, police noticed inconsistencies in their stories, and eventually, two confessions were made and signed paving the way for formal charges to be filed against them the next day. Frank, he was the first to crack. He gave two slightly different stories during his interrogation. However, he did confess to driving the car and confirmed that Jonathan pulled the trigger on the gun after they all went to Mancino's to rob it. According to Frank, he saw Jonathan walking into Mancino's with the gun and locking the door behind him. He watched the lights go out, and then Jonathan returned to the car a few minutes later leaving through the back door and leaving the front entrance locked. Jonathan confirmed to Frank that he'd, quote, ripped the kid off as they drove away. Frank said he didn't know what happened to the gun, but he thought Matthew had gotten rid of it, possibly at a friend, Donnie's place. Once Frank's confession was in hand, investigators went to Jonathan and told him that his friends were talking, and they said that he pulled the trigger. When they told him his friends had pointed to him as killer... Jonathan put his head in his hands, and the officer suggested that maybe there was more to the story, some mitigating circumstances that may help his case. Jonathan said that he was under the influence of marijuana and LSD, not just that night, but he'd been using drugs most of the day. Then he confessed that it was a robbery gone wrong. He went into Mancino's to rob it, and the gun went off accidentally. He didn't mean to kill anyone. According to his statement, Jonathan went into Mancino's, turned off the lights, walked Justin to the cooler, and as he was leaving him in the cooler, the gun went off. He didn't mean to hurt Justin. He was just hoping to get some money. Officers asked Jonathan how much money he got away with, but they didn't get a firm answer, although he said he'd hoped to get more. He thought there would be closer to $1,000 in the register because pizza places are so busy on the weekends. Listeners, alarm bells are going off. We know that Justin Mello was shot execution style, possibly while kneeling in the cooler. That doesn't sound like, oops, the gun went off. That sounds like a downward trajectory for a weapon being aimed at the back of someone's head. During further questioning, Jonathan admitted that he planned the robbery with Frank and Matthew at a party earlier that night, and said he made the phone call from the party. During the phone call, Jonathan said he ordered a pizza, and when he was denied the late delivery, he name-dropped the owner to get the manager to comply. He only wanted one person in the store because he figured it would be easier to rob that way, and he knew from speaking to friends who worked there, employees got in trouble for not treating Ken's friends well. He also confessed to taking and dumping Justin's wallet. When asked about where he got the gun, he said that Matthew was the one who obtained and then got rid of the murder weapon. Again, more alarm bells. We learned in episode one that the phone call that ordered the late delivery pizza which left Justin alone in the store, that phone call came from a payphone at a gas station, remember? Investigators lamented that the payphone could have been used by anyone. Therefore, it was not good evidence in the investigation. Also, that the gas station lacked cameras, so there was little to be gleaned from the call. But he said he called from the party, not from the gas station. Another point? How could he have known that the delivery would leave just one person in the pizza shop? Normal protocol stated there would be two staffers and one delivery driver. Jonathan could not have known that Justin was in the shop by himself that night. Of the three teenagers, Matthew was the only one not to give a confession. This could be because, as a minor, he needed to be interviewed with a parent present. And I don't know about you, but I would not let my child sign a murder confession, nor would I let my kid talk to police without a lawyer present. Frank and Jonathan were both interviewed alone with no representation. At their ages, 18 and 19, They may not have known to ask for it, or that they didn't need to talk to the police without legal representation. But the lack of confession from Matthew didn't matter. Both Frank and Jonathan said he provided and disposed of the 9mm murder weapon. Plus, another witness implicated him, so Matthew was charged along with the other teenagers. On the 27th, the three teens are charged with felony murder, as well as armed robbery, conspiracy to commit, and weapons charges. Around 6 a.m. that morning, searches were conducted at their homes looking for additional evidence tying them to the murder. They even searched the home of one of their uncles. Items of interest were collected from all four sites and taken into evidence, although the murder weapon was not recovered. So, listeners, who were these teenagers, one of whom was still a minor? And what led them to confess to committing this murder? 16-year-old Matthew Daniels had attended Anchor Bay High School with Justin, and they were in the same grade. Today, 2,000 students attend Anchor Bay High. So it's a large school, and it is not known if Matthew and Justin were in any of the same classes, or if they even knew each other. Matthew dropped out of school on January 12th of 2000, just after the winter break. He was known to get in trouble a lot, and he had a long record of disciplinary issues, although it is not clear if his withdrawal from school was related to these issues, or if there were other reasons for him to drop out. Like Matthew, 18-year-old Jonathan Khaled was a New Baltimore local. He had attended Anchor Bay High School and had a history of behavioral issues at the school, as well as a handful of run-ins with the law. He had a couple of misdemeanor convictions and a pending possession charge. Jonathan was only a few months shy of graduating when he dropped out of school on October 10, 2000. Unlike Matthew, we know why Jonathan left school. He needed money. Earlier in the year, Jonathan wrecked a friend's car. He wanted to make things right financially, so he left school to start working full-time at an auto detailing shop. Now, some 18-year-olds would turn to family for support with issues like this, but this wasn't an option for Jonathan. There were problems at home, and sometimes Jonathan would couch-surf at his friend's places in order to have a roof over his head. His friends nicknamed him Jolly, because he always had a positive outlook and a smile. Despite his history, Jonathan had solid plans for his future. He was an ROTC and intended to enlist in the military. According to some reporting, he was planning on attending morning sessions at an alternative education program when the new term started in January, so he could get his high school diploma. Unlike Matthew and Jonathan, 19-year-old Frank Kukin was not raised in New Baltimore, and not much is known about his life prior to his arrest. Frank's friends called him by his middle name, Neil, but since the reporting refers to him as Frank, I will use that name as well. It was reported that he attended hazel park high school in hazel park michigan which is about 30 miles south of new baltimore but he dropped out when he was 16. he took morning classes for two years but stopped attending before he earned his diploma the three teenagers knew each other from work they had all worked at a local market until jonathan was fired for trying to sneak beer out of the stock room in a trash can According to a Mancino's employee, Jonathan was friends with a couple of young people who worked at the pizzeria, so he was not a strange face to those who worked there. In a smaller city like New Baltimore, high schoolers would have limited after-school job options, and it makes sense that at least one of the trio had friends that worked at Mancino's. Jonathan would visit his friends when they were working, have some pizza and soda, and chat when things were quiet. Following the arrests and convictions, details began to emerge about the events of October 21st. Police told an unnamed source that the men had called the pizza parlor from a gas station, placing a phony order and using the owner's name to intimidate the manager into allowing a late-night delivery. Further, police said they believed Frank's pickup truck was the getaway vehicle and that Matthew procured and provided the weapon. Investigators believe they know how the crime played out. And Chief Bolgar is quoted as saying, as long as physical violence isn't used, a confession shouldn't be considered coerced because everyone gets angry and raises their voice. And on that note, we'll be right back. News of an arrest, well, three arrests in this highly publicized case dominated the news cycle the local media started running stories about the three young men police believed were responsible for the murder of Justin Mello. After all, New Baltimore had been holding its breath since the murder, and everyone was invested in the outcome of this story. When the faces of the arrested appeared on television, Shannon Canfield, someone who was on the periphery of the story, someone who knew everyone involved but wasn't involved, she called her mother in a panic. Shannon told her mom that she had been with the trio the night of the murder. She knew they couldn't be responsible for Justin's death. Shannon's mom called the police who asked her to bring Shannon in to give a statement. According to Shannon's statement, around 8 p.m. on the night of the murder, she was at a friend's house, Joe Groslin. There was a small gathering of people, including Matthew, Jonathan, and Frank. Around 9:30, Shannon and her friend Barbara left the gathering. Frank left too and they followed Frank to the gas station and then on to another friend, Donnie's place. Many of the people from the first gathering were at Donnie's. From the description, it appears that this, the second party, was a more rural location which likely came with more freedom and less restrictions on things like noise. Shannon said that Frank, Jonathan, and Donnie all went into a nearby wooded area to get some firewood after they arrived and they were only gone 10, maybe 15 minutes at the most before they rejoined the party. To her knowledge, they stayed at the party the rest of the evening, which means they could not be responsible for the murder of Justin Mello. The Woodland Bonfire Party was uneventful and Shannon left with Barbara and another friend around 11.30 p.m. When Shannon left the party, everyone was still there, including Jonathan, Matthew, and Frank. Shannon's friend Barbara was interviewed by police and she gave a statement that was very similar. Shannon was asked to return to the station the next day to answer more questions, but her story remained the same. Party host Joe Groslin was interviewed and his statement matched Shannon's until a crucial point. He said that around 10 o'clock, Frank, Jonathan, and Matthew left the party in Frank's truck. Joe also said that he heard two of the young men talking about robbing Mancino's earlier that evening. Joe and some others left the party later, headed back to Joe's place, and they saw police cars at Mancino's as they drove past. When they arrived at Joe's, Frank and Matthew were waiting out front in Frank's car. Matthew pulled out some marijuana to share and the partying continued. On the basis of their confessions and the eyewitness testimony of a teen that had been partying, police made the arrests. And listeners, I'm hearing more alarm bells. As an outsider looking in at this information, these stories are not adding up. On the morning of October 28th, newspapers were put out with headlines announcing that Justin's killers had been caught. Three arrested in teen slaying, said the front page of the Times-Herald, above a photo of 18-year-old Jonathan in handcuffs. In court that same day, all three teenagers wore bulletproof vests for their protection. The community was emotional, and law enforcement feared for the safety of the accused. The trio were charged and held without bond. Matthew, in his prison-issued gray-and-white jumpsuit, he was arraigned first, his mom sitting in the courtroom with a support person who had his arm around her. Matthew and Jonathan only spoke to ask for court-appointed lawyers. Frank asked to speak with his parents about getting a private lawyer, but he ended up with a public defender. All three suspects were held at the Macomb County Jail. Bond was out of the question. New Baltimore Police Chief Bolger spoke to the media and urged people to stay calm, saying that the actions of the boys were not a reflection on their families. He wanted to dampen any sparks that might fly in response to knowing the young men's identities. He was not interested in retribution. These teenagers were responsible and they would be held accountable. The preliminary hearing was due to start on November 8th at the 42nd District Court in New Baltimore. 30 or so people gathered outside the court in support of the three teens. They thought that the police had gotten this very wrong and they wanted the boys to know that there were people who believed that they were innocent. The preliminary hearing ended up being postponed until the 16th, as the lawyers were newly retained and needed more time to prepare. The 30-person strong support crew weren't the only ones who believed the men were innocent. Their lawyers saw holes in the case, and they were concerned that the confessions the teenagers gave were false. Jonathan's lawyer told the Times-Herald on November 2nd that he thought the police stopped investigating too early and only sought information and evidence that would strengthen their case against the teens. He continued, saying that when you have an experienced officer in a room with a young person who doesn't know better, the officer can get them to say nearly anything. And listeners, false confessions are far more common than anyone would like to believe. According to the California Innocence Project, 25% of overturned wrongful convictions involve a confession, and false confessions are one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions while we all like to think that we would never confess to a crime we didn't commit some standard interrogation techniques make false confessions more likely further from the california innocence project a common interrogation method called the read technique starts with questions that are non-accusatory but that are designed to see if a person was involved with the crime when an interrogator thinks there has been an admission of involvement they then switch to questioning that assumes the person's guilt with the goal of getting a full confession. This method has been researched and found to be flawed. The suspect is questioned at length, sometimes denied basics like food and rest, and the suspect can feel badgered and intimidated. Feeling intimidated or threatened, whether real or perceived, can make a person think they have to say what the questioner wants to hear. Impacted reasoning skills through a learning disability or through hunger, lack of sleep, or high levels of stress can make people say and do things that aren't true in an attempt to make their situation more bearable. Interrogations that go on for more than six hours also have an increased risk of eliciting a false confession. Young people who don't know their rights are also more vulnerable. With children under the age of 14 being particularly so... As part of the interrogation, the interrogator can start to contaminate the story with pieces of information that they know, and they can lead the storyline into one that fits the evidence. This can cause a person with no prior knowledge of the crime to implicate themselves or implicate others, because now they know details of the crime that they didn't before, details that surely only someone connected to the crime would know. In many states, it is perfectly legal for interrogators to lie to suspects and tell them there is solid evidence like DNA or fingerprints connecting them to the crime. This can make an innocent person start to doubt themselves and doubt their recollection of events. Remember, we have three young men, two who dropped out of high school prior to graduation, one that struggles with homelessness, and a third who was only 16 years old. At 1 p.m. on November the 16th, the preliminary hearing began. Only the family of the three men and members of Justin Mello's family were allowed inside, as well as some members of the media. Matthew's lawyer was hopeful that there wouldn't be enough physical evidence to move forward with his client. Each of the defense lawyers said that the trio were being mistreated in prison and were denied basic hygiene needs such as toothbrushes and razors to shave with. They also wanted all rough notes from the interrogations kept and surrendered to them so they could gather evidence for the defense of their clients. Meanwhile, the prosecution presented their case, which consisted of confessions, a couple of eyewitness testimonies and circumstantial evidence. No physical evidence was submitted, no DNA, no fingerprints, no shoe prints. There was nothing in the way of physical evidence linking these three teenagers to the execution-style murder of 16-year-old Justin Mello. A detective recounted the confession that Jonathan gave, saying that Jonathan entered Mancino's and locked the door, trapping Justin inside. He then forced Justin into the cooler at gunpoint so he would be out of the way for the robbery. And then the gun went off as he was backing out of the cooler. Another witness for the prosecution was a friend of Matthew's, who said that Matthew purchased $500 worth of drugs from him the day after the murder. This friend, he ended up pleading the fifth as not to incriminate himself further. The medical examiner testified about the autopsy and the findings. None of these incriminated anyone without a murder weapon. The bullet was a 9mm, and it was fired from 3 to 6 inches away, but with no gun to match to it? that information didn't build a case against the teens. After less than two days of testimony, the prosecution's case appeared to crumble. One of their witnesses, Joe Groslin, he recanted his statement with police terminating the interview because they believed he was not being truthful. However, he was still called to testify. Joe had originally given a statement saying he overheard the trio planning the robbery prior to the murder and saying he heard Matthew say after the slang that the large amount of drugs he had were, quote, compliments of Mancino's. Once he was in a courtroom, Joe said his statement was coerced. He said he felt intimidated into giving police the information they wanted. Under cross, Joe said he was interrogated for more than five hours and told that he was lying and he was not going to leave until he told them the truth. So he told the officers what they wanted to hear. The prosecutor said Joe changed his story several times. And listeners, that makes sense if he was giving false information. Remembering a lie is a lot harder than remembering the truth. On November 21st, it was reported that another witness recanted, Matthew Harrison, who made a statement about Matthew Daniels saying the drugs he possessed were, quote, compliments of Mancino's. He also testified that he felt he had to make the statement to be able to leave the interrogation room. Harrison said in court that the trio were at Joe's party the night of the murder. They may have been guilty of underage drinking, maybe some illegal drug use, but they were not guilty of murder. On November 22nd, the preliminary hearing ended and the judge had no choice but to drop the charges against Matthew due to lack of evidence but the judge decided there was enough evidence to go ahead with the trial of Frank and Jonathan. You see, Frank and John had confessed, but Matthew hadn't, and the Sixth Amendment prevented the use of that police station confession against Matthew. If Frank and John implicated him in court testimony, that could be used, but they didn't. Joe Groslin and Matthew Harrison's statements also linked Matthew Daniels to the crime. However, since they'd recanted, their initial statements weren't credible. The judge made his personal feelings about the case very clear to the media. He was quoted in the Detroit Free Press after Matthew's charges were dropped as saying, quote, after today, Matt Daniels and his supporters will be free to claim his innocence and the injustice of his arrest. But we who have been present throughout the testimony will know the truth to be otherwise. Matthew's lawyer said the judge was out of line with his statements and basically declared the trio guilty. Matthew's mom was glad to have him coming home and looked forward to the day that the others were freed as well. And regarding those recanted statements, the judge said he was considering perjury charges for those who recanted, a charge that carried a sentence of life in prison due to the case being a capital one. Shannon, the girl who went to the station with her mom after she saw the trio on television? Shannon was threatened with obstruction of justice for her statement, which the police believed was false, and was only given in an attempt to free her friends. It's like they couldn't believe that Shannon was telling the truth. The arraignment of Frank and Jonathan was set for December 11th, and things in the media quieted down for a few days, at least until November 30th, when reports of new suspects emerged. Suspects in Kentucky add twists to pizzeria slang, declared the front page of the Detroit Free Press. And just like that, two new suspects. Former Mancino's employees were in the picture. These men were armed, dangerous, and on a crime spree. But would it be enough to clear Frank and John? We'll talk about that and more next week. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.